0: Perspective is a radio program of biographical interviews of people who have either chosen the Baha'i Faith as a way of life or who have a relationship with the Baha'i Faith. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org, that's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G, where or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Greg Gagira Watson a Baha'i from the Midwest who was about to get his doctorate in education and who became a born-again Christian minister earlier in his life before becoming a Baha'i. I started the interview by asking Greg where he grew up and what was it like growing up there.
1: I grew up in a small town in southeastern Oklahoma, about 20,000 people, rural but segregated and racist in a way, but most of the south and, and uh Oklahoma and Texas tend to be a little bit that way. I know when I was a youth, and I'm now in my 50s, we didn't have but one black person in our junior high, and it was just not until high school we had any blacks. They were in a separate school north of the tracks, had to go to a different school. And there was only one black woman in our church, and she had to sit in the balcony. Mm -hmm. So I always wondered about that. And my dad had a brother in Mississippi we used to go visit, and I remember... At that time, there were still separate drinking fountains and different bathrooms for blacks and whites. So it was always an issue for me. Mm. What was school like? School was fun. I did well in school and uh, always enjoyed it. And, and, you know, I think that uh, growing up was kind of like being on the farm for me. My grandfather had a farm, and I used to work with the... Uh, cows and milk the cows sometimes, and we always had horses to chase the cows around and round them up every year for doing special things to them. I used to ride to school with a crow flying behind me on my bicycle. This crow was uh, an amazing crow. He could talk and used to wake the neighbors up by calling them by name, so he got his own obituary in the newspaper when he died. Actually, he was so famous in the town, so that was part of my distinction as a youth that I was the kid with the crow. Oh, it was, it was identified as your crow. Oh, yeah. And uh, got my pilot's license and became a skydiver while I was still in high school. My dad was one of the founders of the sport, helped bring it, establish it. He was the chief pilot of the first national sport parachuting championships. So I was this kid who was crazy and jumping out of airplanes. Well, I went off to college and majored in skydiving. Seriously, well, it wasn't in the catalog. Yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> I never heard of such a thing. <laughs> I think my other courses suffered. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. So, but uh, yeah, that was interesting. And actually, something very traumatic happened in college, and and I dropped out. Um, this was in the late '60s, in 1968. The Tet Offensive occurred in Vietnam, and it was a troubled time in our country. We had so much uh, turmoil on the university campuses, and as you know, the students who protested the war at Kent State were shot by the National Guard, and some were killed. And uh, I think there was a huge amount of stress on people, particularly young people. And one day I was walking home, from the student union past the tall dormitories at the University of Oklahoma, the 10 stories. And I saw a crowd of kids gathered at the base of the building and there was kind of commotion there and I walked up and kind of joined them, walked into the crowd and they were looking up at a man on the 10th floor who was standing out on a ledge and apparently threatening to jump and commit suicide. And um, actually the mob as I like to call them now, began yelling, Jump! 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 But he did jump. And I've often wondered if he thought, Well, if they don't care enough and if they really want me to do this, I'll show them or something. But he, you know, there was some police behind trying to reach through the window and get to him and stuff, but he took a nosedive, and just a a dive with his hands to his side and landed around the sidewalk in front of me, head first, And I just walked back to my dormitory and packed my bags and dropped out of college. Mm. Went home. I figured the world was going crazy, and I didn't want to go. And the um, Kent State shootings and the pages of newspapers that had pictures of Buddhist monks pouring gasoline over their Bodies and setting themselves on fire to protest the war really did make me question, what is real here? What's truth? What's important? What are the real values? In some ways, the suicide of those Buddhist monks made more sense to me than the suicide of this person who killed himself right in front of me at the university. Mm. Because they were doing it for a cause, for some noble purpose, they claimed, to protest inhumanity to man by other men. And the other one was just insanity. Mm-hmm. So I did. I went on a quest to try to find the meaning of life. Dropped out. Moved to California. But when I first got there, I actually was in Marin County across the bay, up on a mountain. Um, and uh, we lived with a Buddhist monk who was in the middle of a 40-day fast when I got there. hmm Next-door neighbors are the Moody Blues Band. In fact, the first time I met them, I was hitchhiking. They picked me up in their van and <laughs> took us up the hill. <laughs> and Senator Hayakawa I was uh, a neighbor and I used to talk to him at the post office. So it was kind of a strange transition from rural Oklahoma. I was thrust into the consciousness expansion movement and the people who were protesting not only the war but the establishment and the so-called military-industrial complex. So how long were you there? I was there about t- two or three years. Two years. Mm-hmm. Not quite three. And, you know, it was funny because um, I had a, I had a job. I wasn't a classic hippie person. We were on a quest for... The people I was with were into meditation and and studying the Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita and the Vedas and one of their... Uh, my best friend's brother who invited me out there had been with the Beatles in an ashram in India just a month before we got there. and uh, So there was this... We were reading all these things like the Alan Watts' book on the taboo against knowing who you really are. <laughs> and so we were all trying to find out who we really were. And some were fasting for 40 days. Um, and I fasted on that mountain up there overlooking the bay and um but i also had a job eventually i worked for warner brothers uh, motion pictures in their ad agency in san francisco i left there uh after a time when i thought that the whole movement was going in a strange way and i needed to find myself for myself rather than being caught up in it all and i took a job as a skydiver for a water ski show in wisconsin for the summer. That's where I heard about Baha'i. Uh, well, tell me about it. Well, um, when I got there, we had had to compete, and uh, there was a kind of an audition or what I guess trials. And uh, when we joined, the captain of the team was a Baha'i, and the owner of the these um, water ski shows—I think he owns some in Florida as well—was. Uh, Talking about how different this person was when it, when I was inter- before I got introduced to him, I met the owner of the water ski show. Mm-hmm. He said, the "Captain of your team is a member of a interesting religion, and he um, he's, he probably won't be doing some of the things the rest of you do. He doesn't drink and he doesn't curse. <laughs> he's a Baha'i, <laughs> and uh, but he was a great great guy. I didn't stay the entire time for the summer, but." Um, I didn't learn a lot about the faith as a result, but he gave me one of those little cards that has a picture of the Baha'i House of Worship in Chicago, just outside Chicago, Wilmette, Illinois. It has ten points, ten major uh, points that are essential teachings of the Baha'i religion. Mm -hmm. The oneness of God, that there's only one God, and there's only one religion, all the prophets have taught it. And the oneness of humanity. And the unity of nations the need to overcome the tension between science and religion, the equality of the races, the elimination of prejudice, universal compulsory education, universal peace upheld by universal law. And I looked at that list. I was walking across a golf course, I remember, going back to the cabins where we stayed. And I was just reading the back of this card, and I was just reading each one of these. And I said, I believe that. It was like a checklist. I was just checking them off. And I said, I believe that. I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. I got up to the last one and I checked it off. Says, Yeah, I believe that too. I must be behind. I stuck it in my pocket and I didn't hear about the faith for another year and a half. <laughs> Never had another conversation about it with anybody. Uh, after that, I don't think before I had, had left there and went back to Oklahoma. I went to Mexico for a while. I entered a monastery, but I, I went searching still for God. When I I was in Mexico, I got amoebic dysentery, and I took some uh, medicine that they sell there that they didn't sell up here that wasn't, I guess, actually approved by the FDA. I think it must have made me really sick, the medicine, because when I got back, I had um, something wrong with my nervous system. I had um, paralysis in my arms and legs and uh, numbness, sensations, and... Sometimes, even in the middle of the night, I'd be awakened by something hitting me in the face, mm-hmm. only to discover on awakening, being awakened by this, that uh, it was my own hand that was socking me in the face. <laughs> it was a bit traumatic. It's like almost somebody else on my arm. But mm-hmm. it was completely numb, so I couldn't tell it was in some kind of a spasm or something. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't well, and... Um, So I really started seeking God on another level for personal healing. Mm -hmm. And um, I had studied the Eastern thought and Eastern religions and had come to this conclusion that there was a oneness of God, that all of these seemed complementary in a way, even though they didn't teach the same thing. They were talking about different aspects of the divine reality. And um, one particular philosopher, sage, wise man, his name was Ramakrishna, he he was Hindu, had some interesting writings on how all the religious paths lead to the same source. But he made an interesting recommendation. He said that you should follow the one of your ancestors because it's a stronger path for you. It's almost like it's written in your blood. And then I read something similar by Carl Jung. It was probably in the introduction to some Tibetan book or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he wrote the introduction to the Tibetan book on the Great Liberation, Carl Jung. About half the book was written by Carl Jung. Um, The rest is Tibetan. But it was a great psychological treatise. And I got the sense that these archetypes of divine power, these... uh, Symbols and, and, um, I guess the teachings of the different religions would resonate more with the peop- people who are within the culture from which they've come. So I decided to study the Bible and to choose that as my path. And I was raised in the Presbyterian Church. I went up to the minister and I had been given, um, couple of books by some sort of charismatic types, um, my barber, my dentist. You know, this is a Southern Baptist town, practically, Uh, for all intents and purposes. There's a Baptist church on every corner. There's a gas station on the opposite corner of every one of those intersections, but there's a Baptist church in every corner in that town. Not a Baptist church, but at least a church. Church of Christ, Baptist church, Methodist church, all these churches. There was a movement, however, in the country at the time that I think it was referred to as charismatic and uh, full gospel businessmen's movement and several of those talking about the gifts of the Spirit. And since I was seeking a healing, I was interested in reading about this because I had heard about the healing of the Holy Spirit. And I went to my minister who was a, probably a typical Presbyterian minister. Not into the charismatic movement, uh, not uh, a part of that whole wave that was occurring. I think in our church, they were studying the existentialists for a while. (laughs) Uh, They had Kierkegaard and all of the others um, in some sort of workshop there. But he was very open and honest. When I asked him, you know, is the God that was written about in the Bible 2,000 years ago still capable of doing the miracles that were worked in? Is the power of the Holy Spirit a reality that people can experience in their lives experientially? He says, well, you know, I've been wanting to know about that, too, and I don't know much about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) And he says, but there is a woman in our church, and she talks about the power of the Holy Spirit and rebirth, and you might want to talk to her. Her name's Mary Hardy. went down to visit her on her ranch, Her husband was a prominent rancher. And I had called originally and asked to make the appointment at the recommendation of the ministry. She said, come on down. So I got there. And something very strange happened. I had had a dream before I went. I've only had like three visions in my life that I would really classify a dream as a vision. I think there are probably three or four different kinds of dreams. One is where you just try to resolve what happened during the day your mind's still working on stuff maybe and uh, and and you may get some insight like uh, was it discovered the benzene ring and Einstein had some dream that gave Mm. him an insight to his problems those kinds of things maybe are part of the human spirit but they're not like revelations to the soul from higher realm perhaps or maybe they are in another way Mm. maybe we can't differentiate these things that that clearly and then of course some dreams are just bad pizza. Where you shouldn't have eaten so late. And I guess we really need ways to distinguish and have some kind of validity test for these uh, subjective experiences. And I've kind of worked on that in my later years as part of my academic work. But so I didn't, you know, always want to say something was, you know, you question because you don't want to get goofy about your spiritual experiences. In the first vision, um, I was healed. Mm. And the trouble I was having with my uh, arms and legs went away. Wow. And uh, I woke up and uh, I was restored. And all that depression or sense of disconnection and everything was gone and the world looked beautiful. My prayer was answered. Everything looked beautiful. It was like something William James writes about in the psychology of religious experience where there's a dark night of the soul and then there's a rebirth and it happened in, in that in that dream, in that well. vision, and um, the second one was the next night, and I had experienced a presence in the first dream, and in the second one, these words were spoken: "I shall send my spirit before thee to prepare a place for thee there where I am, you may be also." Mm. Now that sounds familiar, like it's from the Bible. It's similar to a Bible passage I discovered. Yeah. I was now trusting in a higher realm that was speaking to me or guiding me in some way, and when I got to her home, she started telling me about my dream. Oh my gosh! Without me ever mentioning it, and I thought, Wow, you know, this is one of those things I've read about in these books, these charismatic books. I think one of the books was um, crossing the switchblade, and other ones they speak in other tongues and. And so one of the signs of the Holy Spirit was the interpretation of dreams. And uh, I guess in Corinthians, St. Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, one of them is interpretation of dreams. So she said, Well, you know, there is a group out of Fort Worth, Texas that is a Spirit-led ministry, and they are having a workshop, a retreat, what they call it. I was told that they were having one for the youth, my father, I mean, he had this custom of bringing me a glass of orange juice even before i get out of bed. Isn't that nice? Yes, very nice. Yeah, he was a great guy. He brought me a ticket, a round-trip ticket, to New Mexico. Actually, I had made a request. I knew it might be coming. I wanted to go out and investigate St. John's College in Santa Fe as a place to go back to school. And they were reading the great books of the rest of Western world, and you get to read these in their own original writings of mm-hmm. the great thinkers and philosophers, and scientists. So he bought me a ticket and surprised me. I went out to Santa Fe before I went to visit this church in Fort Worth, or that had the retreat in the Camp Goddard. I went out to Santa Fe for a few days and that's where I first really heard about Baha'u'llah. I arrived on Saint John's campus and was looking around at uh, different classes and trying to figure out if I really wanted to go to school there and I kept noticing these youth across the courtyard or around the building or somewhere every once in a while you know how you look up and see somebody who their head turns towards you at the same time and you know they weren't looking at you until you turned and looked at them and it's like you, it was a synchronicity it was a strange maybe it's a soul thing I don't know what it is have you ever experienced that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very, I know what you're talking about it's real strange yeah um, it's like the the spirits are communicating before the bodies turn their heads and look at each other <laughs> or something I don't know but uh, I ran into him in the cafeteria actually there were two hallways that uh, met at a 90 degree angle I couldn't see him until we both reached the same intersection there we were walking beside each other and he says oh are you a guest? And I said yeah, I'm here. So, why are you here? And I said, Well, I'm checking out the school. He said, I thought so. And I'm also trying to find God. <laughs> I didn't quite say it like that, but I sort of let him know I was on this quest for religious enlightenment. So he said, Well, you should have lunch with me. And we um, so I sat down and, and ate lunch with David Moore. Um, you can read about him in the Vision Quest by Vincent uh, Brown, um, where he went with the Sioux Indians in South Dakota. Mm. But uh, he was a wonderful musician and a delightful soul, and uh, we ate there uh, lunch together. And I, he said, "Well, tell me about your religious quest." And uh, I'm paraphrasing all this, of course, said, "Well, you know, I've studied the Eastern religions, and in almost all of these faiths of the different religions, which I see somewhat complimentary, one of the books I read was." by Sri Agava, Bhagavan Das. Sri Bhagavan Das. This is a Hindu philosopher who wrote a book called The Essential Unity of All Religions, which is probably the most profound Eastern book I'd read. Essential Unity of All Religions took all the different central principles and they would parallel them. It was like a synoptic gospel of all the religions. Uh, parallel phrases and quotes. and Like... We know the good one, right? The, big, the number one is the golden rule. Everybody says that runs like a thread through all the religions. Well, there are other central teachings of each religion that are also parallel. So I'm in this cafeteria right. at Santa Fe, right. and uh, uh, David Moore is uh, charming me. <laughs> and I say, well, you know, I've read these other religions, and they all have this kind of messianic promise of some great teacher. Some promised one, you know By some he's known as the spirit of truth In fact, more than one of them Refers to him by that name In a spiritual way And then he quoted this passage from me I'd like to read a piece of it Sure It's from the book of Certitude Written by Baha'u'llah Thus it is that Jesus himself declared I go away and come again unto you Conceive accordingly The distinction, variation, and unity Characteristic of the various manifestations of holiness Manifestation is a Baha'i word for The Christ The Messiah The messenger of God The prophet, the revealer It's called a manifestation Interesting, the word manifestation Is in the Bible, the word incarnation isn't I learned later Mm. So, Christ was a manifestation of holiness Moses was a manifestation of holiness The Buddha, Krishna The Bab, Baha'u'llah, Muhammad Consider their Variation, the distinction, and also their unity, the unity characteristic of these various manifestations of holiness, to the mysteries of distinction and unity. That was the first Baha'i passage I ever heard. Mm. And it just resonated with my soul. So here we were at St. John's College in Santa Fe, which means the city of the Holy Faith ultimately decided not to go to school there and um, wound up graduating from the university uh, Oklahoma State University but um, I wanted to be closer to home okay my parents etc they've been pretty worried about me out traipsing all over the world Mexico and San Francisco and and Haydashbury and everything else so but I get back to Oklahoma and there aren't any Baha'is I had to drive an hour and a half to Oklahoma City just to buy Baha'i books they didn't have everything. I had to drive to Dallas, which is two and a half two hours two and a half hours. so to meet the Baha'is when I got back there, I decided you know I needed to get some books, I needed to find out more about this. I needed to meet the Baha'is so I um, did that. I did go to my college library, and there was one there was not any there were no Baha'i books in the public library, and there was one Baha'i book in the college library It was a white prayer book, but nobody had heard of Baha'i in my town, and uh, there were no Baha'is. During this time that I was studying, I, I um, had contacted, uh, you know, I had decided to study the Bible, and then I heard about the Baha'i faith, so now I was reading the Baha'i writings and reading the Bible, and I was understanding the Bible better, because Baha'u'llah's uh, revelation has given new understandings of these Bible teachings. Even as Christ said, the day shall come when I will no longer speak to you in parables and symbols or figures, depending on which interpretation you read. I shall no longer speak in symbolism, parables, but I shall speak to you plainly of the Father. And even as Jesus said when he would return that I have more to tell you, but she cannot bear it now. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, is come, he shall guide you unto all truth. He shall take of mine and show it unto you. And so when Baha'u'llah came, he says, this is that word which the son veiled when he said to those around him that they could not bear it. And he has. He has spoken those things that Christ said that he was not able to speak at that time because we wouldn't understand it. Some people think, the revelation of Jesus was ended when nothing else was supposed to happen after that but you have to wonder if he himself said it was incomplete then there must be more to come right he says I have more to tell you well he's got to tell you some other time makes and, sense <laughs> and so it wasn't complete it was incomplete he said it was incomplete so I was reading Baha'u'llah's writings and he was giving this new found faith in, in Christ and I was understanding who Jesus was I was understanding the station of the manifestation this is a Baha'i term to explain what Christians often refer to as the office of um, Christ the Christ or a prophet for example with John the Baptist Jesus uh, refers to John and John refers to himself in two different ways that are somewhat confusing until you get Baha'u'llah's explanation and one passage the Bible the the um, the disciples come to John and say well you know the Christ, the Messiah is supposed to come but before he comes Elijah is supposed to appear first he said, and they say they ask him now are you the Messiah are you Elijah who are you you know and uh, of course he denies being either one and with specific specifically with respect to Elijah that he, he's not Elijah and yet Jesus said that John the Baptist was Elijah in two different places one he says and they knew he spoke of John the Baptist when he said he'd come already and he didn't mention the name. The other place he actually mentions John the Baptist's name specifically says John the Baptist was Elijah. Mm. So how do you reconcile those two? John says he wasn't Elijah Jesus says he was. Well, if you believe that the Bible is sacred text, you have to believe there's no contradiction. On some level, there must be an interpretation that interprets or explains how both are true. And Baha'u'llah gives that interpretation. And Although the Bible gives some allusion to it by saying that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah, the Baha'i writings explain that he's the return of the station of Elijah. It's like the rose in the springtime. You say the rose is returned. But you're not talking about the same atoms that dropped off the flower and uh, the bush and fell into the dust and disintegrated and became part of the dirt. You're talking about the perfections. You're talking about the same symmetry, the beauty, the color, the fragrance, and all the attributes that are present. Mm. So, John the Baptist was the return of those perfections that were in Elijah, and he fulfilled the office and the mission of Elijah. He was in the station of Elijah. In like manner, Jesus is supposed to return. And yet, who is Jesus? You know, I had to answer this question. This is fundamental to me as a Christian, and it became even more important to me after I had my Christian rebirth experience, which was before I actually um, became confirmed as a Baha'i through the similar spiritual experience. You know, it's kind of like there are many paths to to enter the Baha'i faith, and some are through study and reading, and some are, you know, very intellectual, and others are um, mystical and, and spirit-led, and I think everybody has a mixture of these two, and I had not become a scholar, and I had not been studying um, um, the Baha'i revelation. Baha'i Uh, at the point that I received my convincement, what the Quakers refer to as a convincement. Mm -hmm. uh, It it was not an intellectual convincement. It was pretty mystical. Mm -hmm. This was um, kind of going parallel for a while, my study of the Bible and my study of the Baha'i writings. And I saw that they were in synchrony. Mm -hmm. When I went to the Partners in Prayer outreach I discovered that the 17th chapter of John was their mandate, that they were praying for the unity of the church. In fact, they said, this is really the Lord's Prayer. I mean, the prayer he gave us that we call the Lord's Prayer was our prayer. It's for us. But the Lord's Prayer, the one he gave, the one he prayed, was for the unity of the church. And even for the unity of mankind. I have other sheep not of this fold that must be brought in also. Which, from a Baha'i perspective, I interpret that to mean the other religions must also be united with the Christians because there's only one God, the Father of us all. All are created by God. And therefore, there must be only one source of divine inspiration. And if these other religions are truly inspired, if they are divine revelations, then they have to be in agreement in some way with the Christian teachings. And so it was only by reading Baha'i and Baha'u'llah's teachings and Abdu'l-Baha's teachings that I began to understand this more clearly. So, this experience is referred to in the Bible in different ways, and rebirth, baptism of the Holy Spirit are applied to it, and in the words of uh, St. Paul, I became a new creature in Christ. Old things passed away, all things became new. And it was for me a Christian experience. I was with the Christian church uh i, I was not, actually not present with anyone else except a man who came and asked me to pray with him and and in that prayer he was he was healed of an infirmity when we received this baptism mm. and that was another great sign but um that's another story <laughs> so i had a conundrum i had a bit of a conflict internal revolution in my soul I was reborn as a Christian in a Christian youth gathering I actually became a youth minister in that church and continued to work with them for months and months and months for about oh nine months I would guess um off and on different retreats I actually moved I was in Fort Worth I went there they had accepted me as a part of that whole thing and working with the youth and um all the while carrying in one hand the Bible and in the other hand gleanings from the writings of Baha'u'llah. I knew for certain that it was Baha'u'llah's writings that had given me the faith in Christ to receive that baptism and that rebirth. Hmm. And yet I had not had that same kind of confirmation. I was starting to go to Baha'i conferences and things. I went to the Baha'i Youth Conference in Wilmette. And um, then something very strange happened. Two, two things happened. I decided I could be a Baha'i and member of this church at the same time. No, you know, it was it was interesting inside that hidden words was a so-called declaration card. It's a membership card. You can sign up and join the Baha'i religion. Anybody beca- can become a member who believes in Baha'u'llah that he's a messenger from God and accepts to obey his teachings, follow his teachings. So I took that and I took the covenant card from the church, which says I agree to pray daily for the unity of the church, which essentially the 17th chapter of John, that the church may become one in Christ and one with each other, and, and um, I mailed them in the same day, <laughs> mailed this Baha'i card to Chicago, and I mailed the other one to Fort Worth, and I was in a little town in the middle of Oklahoma, halfway between Oklahoma City and Dallas, mailed them off, so I was a member of both, right? Mm-hmm. And... Um, I think well there's no conflict they're both talking about the oneness they're both promoting oneness and they, they're they from the same it's the same source it's the same reality mm-hmm. okay um, but I still wondered well, am I going to have this kind of confirmation about Baha'i that to the degree that I had as coming into this Christian understanding mm-hmm. where all these Bible verses now made sense to me in a way and I was being um, inspired as a youth minister or something Uh and um, so in the mail on the same day I got an invitation to Baha'i summer school and one of these Christian retreats from Partners in Prayer was the name of the group Camp Bowie Boulevard in Fort Worth, Texas and they were going to have a retreat a summer school sort of which is what the Baha'is were going to have, the Christian group was going to have a retreat for the whole church, not just the youth this time, but the adults and the youth, family family retreat, for a whole weekend at Lake Bridgeport. It's a Methodist camp halfway between Oklahoma City and Dallas. Well, it was right on the Red River, basically. Mm-hmm. Bridgeport, Texas. Had an airplane crash there once. Um, years before... <laughs> <laughs> well, made national news. My dad crashed an airplane right down there about 20 miles from there. We, I was in it. Say that again. Uh, we were in an airplane crash. My, my dad was flying this airplane, and we tried to take off. We were down there skydiving, and uh, we didn't make it on takeoff. The airplane was totally destroyed. Everybody was put in the hospital but me. It was um, an airplane crash. Oh, my God. And it made the national news like all these little airplane crashes do. The, aer- the ambulance ride to the hospital scared me more than the airplane. <laughs> yeah, 120 miles an hour. Oh, my God. So, um, yeah, they were all in the hospital for weeks. I didn't even get hurt. And your father? Oh, he was terrible. He went through the windshield. His knees were chopped up in the dashboard. He had to have plastic surgery, uh, all sorts of things. Wow. Yeah. But everybody survived. Wow. And... um so here, we, here I was a number of years later going back to the same little lake area to this retreat. And um, But uh, the thing I didn't mention was that the day that Partners in Prayer ended their little retreat was the day this Baha'i summer school was to begin at the same location. What? At Bridgeport Methodist Camp. The Baha'is have been using it for their summer school for years and apparently this uh, church was, had decided to use it and in exact proximity the the same they left at noon the Baha'is came in the same afternoon so I I I looked up and I said God I guess you want me to be there (laughs) you know I get the invitation to both at the same time they're both there the same weekend so I go I go to both and you know I will write about this someday I was really taken out of that ministry that time and by the Holy Spirit nobody asked me to quit but I knew it was time and uh, there was a, an experience that convinced me of that. And so after the after the after the Christians left, um, and I say Christians because uh, you know I have to make these distinctions, even though Baha'is don't think of themselves as non-Christian, just because the Christians left didn't mean I wasn't a Christian <laughs> anymore. Right, right, even I was right. now a Baha'i in the Baha'i right. group. Um, the limitation of words. Yes, and this camp was run by uh, actually a Methodist minister. And I was still there, you know, and I decided to cook my lunch on a little camp stove I had. He said, why are you still here? And I said, well, I'm waiting for the Baha'is. And he said, you're just going to go to the Baha'i meeting too? And he knew I was this youth minister at the, in the Christian group. Cause, and he, I said, yeah, and uh, I'm a member of both. And he said, <laughs> oh, you are? <laughs> he said, well, now, this is a really fine Christian group, but if you noticed, they all look alike. They're all white Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, <laughs> and upper middle class. <laughs> and uh, But these Baha'is, they'll take anybody. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> funny. He was actually praising the Baha'is more than he was the Christian group, and he's a Methodist minister. But he knew the Baha'is actually probably better than he knew the, the Christians because they have been coming there every year. And they came all from all over. It was a much larger group, and it was a whole week-long thing, as opposed to just a weekend thing. So, uh, I was actually asked to give a report on the Baha'i Youth Conference that year, and I felt some quickening power of the Holy Spirit while I was giving that report. But I really didn't have this powerful kind of Christian experience in the Baha'i Faith, and I was beginning to think, well, you know, if I if I'm going to be a Baha'i, I want the I want the power of the Holy Spirit in, in my life here the same way I've experienced it in this Christian ministry. Mm-hmm. And so I went, up, I went up to the top of the mountain. They had a, a cross up on the mountain where they had these benches so they could have early morning worship services up there when the sun rises over the lake. Very beautiful. I went up there by myself. And I knelt down at the cross. And I said... O God, and in the name of Jesus Christ, if Baha'u'llah is who he says he is, if he is the return of Christ, then fill my spirit and fill my body with the power that you did when I was baptized with the Holy Spirit and made whole. And instantly, I was just hit with a bolt of lightning and just my whole body was set on fire. Just like electricity flowing through my whole nervous system and and it must have lasted for twenty, thirty minutes. I walked down to the lake in that state, in this bathed in this light, and just praising God and hmm. very experiential kind of entrance to the faith, mystical mm-hmm. kind of entrance to the faith. And um, I still haven't caught up with all these intellectuals who've studied it really well and understand all the details of the history. And yet, this was my real. Convincement. But I love the study of the history and the teachings of the faith. But even for a student of comparative religion, it's, it's such a revelation. It's so voluminous. You cannot, no one single person can possibly absorb it all. Mm. So that began my real Baha'i journey right there at Lake Bridgeport, Texas. And uh, I felt this quickening power of the Holy Spirit throughout my Baha'i life. It's one of the confirmations that comes... Sometimes, even just sitting in a meeting somewhere, or you or you just know something's right in different ways. Things come to you that uh, are confirmations. Hmm. So, what happened after Baha'i Summer School? <clears> oh, <throat> well, I don't know. <laughs> a whole <laughs> lifetime of things since then. I moved to, I was an emergency medical technician. I thought I might want to be a doctor, so I decided to work in a hospital for a while and become an ambulance driver, and I got trained in that. And I actually went to Santa Fe, went back to Santa Fe. I, first the name was Driver in Dallas, and then Albuquerque, and then I went to Santa Fe, and I worked in the ER as an EMT in the emergency room in Santa Fe. Took care of Rob, Rock Hudson one day when he got injured filming a uh, driving a steam-powered car through an Adobe brick wall. <laughs> he got injured. I can land it in Massachusetts. I wanted to study with Dan Jordan and I stayed there. And, and who's Dan Jordan? He was a Baha'i educator. He was the first Rhodes Scholar in music composition at Oxford. He came back and studied uh, psychology and brain development and was the founder of an education model that Baha'is got excited about. And, the uh, Anisa model? Yeah. A lot of Baha'is uh, had um, wanted to go into the field of education because of the high station uh, that Baha'u'llah placed on Education he said, Bend your energies to whatsoever shall further the education of humanity there's so many quotes like that I won't bother to try to quote them, but um, so many Baha'is as a result have become teachers and professors and gone into this field, and I actually decided to to pursue it. You were studying with Dan Jordan what, at at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst. Or I what? actually didn't get to study with him there. I studied with him later after he moved to San Diego, oh, okay. I was at National University, and I did okay. complete a master's degree there, studying with Dan Jordan. Okay, and it was planning to go on and get my doctorate, and then he was killed mm-hmm. um, uh, before that could happen. So, what did you do
0: after you got your master's in education?
1: Well, I had sort of given myself a sabbatical to do that uh, o- over a period of uh, two years and taking time off in the summers and then partly through correspondence um, after I uh, had gotten so inspired by the possibility of education being able to help uh, transform society I decided I didn't want to be a doctor I wanted to work with the healing minds and not just bodies and um, the education of values and and restoration of morality, moral values in the country, character education, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so, I decided I would try to get into graduate school, go on and finish a doctorate. So I I applied to, I think, six different universities, and got in, and eventually came to Harvard University to finish finished up a doctorate. There were some intervening years where I took off and I went to Washington D.C., worked for the U.S. Department of Education worked for the Council, Glo- Council for Global Education, went to Europe was at The Hague um, and I was caught up in something you know I, I think my story is the story of every man I think every person is the same human being in a way That we all have the same struggle, we all have the same kinds of tests, we all have the same kinds of opportunities, and the purpose of this life, this world, is training and development. This world is important as a world of service to others, and partly through that we obtain our own redemption, our own personal progress, spiritual progress and development, Mm -hmm. And well even Baha'u'llah says the portion of some might lie in the palm of a man's hand another might fill a cup and another might fill a gallon measure and then he tells us not to look at the size of the receptacle he tells us that really the criteria for determining whether somebody's measuring up is not how big the receptacle is but how full it is <laughs> you know if you've got a cup full and it's full, then in the sight of God, you're measuring up. Mm-hmm. If you've got a gallon that's supposed to be full and you've only got a cupful or half a gallon in there, even though you've got a lot more than the person with the cup, you're not measuring up in the sight mm-hmm. of God mm. and i and and I have a kind of opposite side opposite side of the coin on this. Concept. this is not in the Baha'i writings, but it's kind of my own interpretation, that tests are the same way. Bounty is what he's talking about. The flood of God's grace that God pours forth. In a way, it's equal for everyone when it comes to measuring time, because the real criteria is whether you're measuring up. In other words, Jesus says it this way, "...unto him to whom much is given, much shall be required." And we're accountable for what we know. We're not accountable for what we don't know. Ignorance is an excuse before God. Unlike before the laws of human beings, you know, ignorance is not an excuse before the law. If you run a light and you didn't know it was there, you still get a speeding ticket. I mean, you still get a ticket. Mm-hmm. So, um, or if you kill somebody and you didn't know it was wrong, of course it, you'd have to face the, the charges. So, but in respect to God's laws, ignorance is an excuse you're not bound, otherwise it would be unjust for God to hold you accountable for something you didn't know. So some are given certain amounts to know and others amount, different amounts, and it's all measured out equally. Everything is in a stage of progress, and every uh, the the kingdoms of this world, the mineral kingdom, the vegetable, the animal, and the human, all have these varying degrees of perfection, of progress and development and the same is true within the human realm itself we are all in progress of development individually
0: mm-hmm.
1: and but we shouldn't be compared to each other I mean we do that and that's where judgment comes and where we start judging other people I love the little story about the boy who, with his father went to the mosque or the synagogue or the church it doesn't matter um, and they were the first ones there and they prayed all day And uh, as people were leaving before they left, the boys remarked to his father, "Um, We're better than they are, aren't we? Because we've been here all day and we're friends and all this. The father says, We might have been if you hadn't said that. (laughs) So I think that um, the worst danger to a man is his own ego. Mm -hmm. And if anybody thinks their service or their. The, the gifts that have come to them from the spirit are the result of their own attainments that's where their fall begins so we have to be on guard against this ego thing all the time mm. so you know I feel like although I've been blessed with many experiences in my life I've had an equal number of tests to go along with them and I don't think there's any way to compare things but I think that tests are equal in the same way that bounty is in terms of measuring cup and measuring up but Baha'u'llah says even those things, they have a hidden mercy in them. He says, for example, calamity is my providence. Outwardly it is fire and vengeance, but inwardly it is light and mercy. You know, you look at starving babies in the, some of the places in the world where they may have the drought or food. Um, or war. a war, or the displaced peoples, or some kind of an awful situation and you think oh gosh how can there be a God
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in a world like this why would anyone make a world like this where there could be this kind of an injustice and misery and suffering and you know I don't know if I could answer that question if I hadn't been touched by the love of God so directly um But I know God lives, and I know God loves us so much. I felt that love down to the core of my being that I can't help but believe that in the midst of the worst misery and suffering that any human being has to go through, there's an equal measure of love and mercy in it Mm. to to enable them to endure it. And And on the flip side of
0: that is our expectation probably from our Creator to help
1: our fellow man Absolutely. to remove that suffering Absolutely. at not, the same time. You can't dismiss it and you can't be callous to it and you can't think, oh well, the poor will always be with you. You should try to alleviate and according to the Baha'i teachings, you should strive to uplift the downtrodden, heal the sick, raise the dead, spiritually dead, I guess, to build a new world in which these kinds of circumstances that cause this to happen It makes us responsible human beings. You know, in a way, God didn't create the circumstances that these people suffer under. These kinds of circumstances exist as a result of the unjust actions of human beings. We've created governments that are uh, inequitable. We've created systems that are unjust. We've ignored the poor. We've ignored the poor nations. The wealthy nations have. We have responsibilities to our fellow man because they're part of our one human family that we don't even understand. Despite our scientific knowledge of this profound interconnectedness and the fact that we do know we're all one human family, we don't feel it on some level. We don't really get it, Mm -hmm. you know. So, you know, there is this kind of us-and-them mentality, and that's what I'm working on now. That's what I'm trying to help mitigate in this world. Mm-hmm. So you have your doctorate? No, I don't. I'm just trying to finish it up now. I've gotten mm-hmm. back to it and uh, finished writing the th- dissertation and, and I hope to get that uh, turned in and completed this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And then what does the future hold for
1: you? Well, I want to do some writing for the next year, perhaps uh, expand the dissertation to publish a book on this theme of world citizenship, education and um, we're um, moving to Atlanta uh-huh. and uh, get away for the cold weather up here, I
0: guess. <laughs> and why Atlanta? I mean, is there something calling you to Atlanta?
1: Maybe, you know, I don't have my triangulation yet. I don't know if the signs of guidance are here, but we've got a couple, maybe. Maybe that's enough to motivate us. It's not an entirely logical decision, but there's the spirit moving us in that direction, I believe, Not, mm-hmm. to, not to mention the cold weather.
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Greg Gira Watson, a Baha'i from the Midwest who got his doctorate in education and who became a born-again Christian minister earlier in his life before becoming a Baha'i. If you want information on the Baha'i faith specifically, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on a Baha'i perspective.
2: With no trouble and problems, don't exist. I check another them; that ain't the case at all. It goes back to the time when I was very small. Not in mind, but size and age. My papa used to say, "You can always look at the negative, but you should always live in the positive." So I try every day to live in that. what is and how much they can and be the first to complain about nothing and life going their way the attitudes that I can't do nothing about and very happy with just breathing in and out the ones that when you say let's go make a difference they'll say nah that's okay <laughs> so I don't waste time on the flip side cause I do know the real on the flip side and I'm crystal clear every day that's why I stay. And it's smiling down Our vision, and it must now strive to expand beyond the horizon. But truly, there's us through the ills of society that's standing our way. God, so, if the road is to harmony, be with the car. But if it's about discord, don't take the ride right at all. Cause the world vision, I see as wow. a one.
0: WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.